Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 368, Dr. Dustin Smith on the plural of majesty in the Hebrew Bible. Well, it's that time of year again, folks. Registration is now open for the 2023 UCA Conference, which will again be held in Springfield, Ohio. Go to UnitarianChristianAlliance.org to find the link where you can register and get your ticket right now before it fills up. Today's episode is one of the excellent presentations from the 2022 conference. It's Dr. Dustin Smith. Sound familiar? Well, this will be the third Trinity's podcast in a row where you will hear from Dr. Smith. The previous two were that excellent two-on-two Trinitarian-Unitarian debate, where, in my opinion, Dr. Smith was the star of the show. I think this is really an excellent presentation. It'll give you a new perspective on these traditional Trinitarian arguments that the occasional surprising plurals that pop up in the Old Testament are God's hint that he is, or maybe they are, not sure, more than one person in a Trinitarian sense. It dawned on me not too long ago that one problem with this argument is that the hints suddenly come to a screeching halt when we're in the New Testament. You just don't see this phenomenon there. Why would God stop hinting about the Trinity just when it was getting good? But back to Dr. Smith, what I think his lecture reveals is there is just this general feature of ancient Hebrew and some other ancient languages where they pluralize words, that is, put them in a plural form, even though the meaning is still singular, in order to intensify them. A traditional name for this phenomenon is the plural of majesty. I would call it intensification by pluralization. Again, using a plural form of a word even when the meaning is singular. To me, it's not wholly unlike typing in all caps or using a bold font. But see what you think. So without further ado, Keegan Chandler introducing Dr. Smith's talk. Dr. Dustin Smith earned his PhD in religion from Bethany Divinity College and Seminary, where he focused on paradoxical ethics in the book of Revelation. He has been teaching biblical studies at the college, graduate, and doctoral level for eight years, and has at the same time been the diligent host of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, a weekly series focusing on the oneness of God and the humanity of Jesus. He is the co-author of the book, The Son of God, Three Views on the Identity of Jesus, and has participated in many debates on subjects related to Biblical Unitarian Theology and Christology. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Dustin Smith. My presentation is the plural of majesty in the Hebrew Bible, assessing the extent of its pervasiveness and the implications for monotheism. Some of us have heard of this concept of the plural of majesty, but the feeling that I get when talking to people is that using the plural of majesty to explain plural concepts within the Old Testament that actually refer to 
Single persons is kind of, uh, it's out of fashion. It's something we don't use anymore. It's something that, uh, that was popular back in the, uh, in the 1900s and early 20th century, but not so much uh, so more. So it's not uncommon for commentaries, Bible dictionaries, lexicons, and academic journal articles to speak of the plural of majesty as a literary concept within biblical Hebrew. However, readers often experience a disconnect between their perception of what the term actually means and the comprehension that the authors of these reference works expect from their readers. Now, Nicholas Lund's recently published article in 2016 in the Journal of Northwest Semitic Languages vocalizes this very problem, and he describes this as an inadequate attempt by the Hebrew reference grammars to define the various plural forms of intensification and abstraction. Now, Dr. Lund observes that the Hebrew lexicons have offered a plethora of terms aimed at capturing the sense of plural forms that are singular in meaning, all under the assumption that these terms are more or less synonymous. And so these terms include plural of majesty, plural of excellence, plural of eminence, plural of intensification, plural of extension, plural of abstraction, plural of generalization, and plural of result. With so many different terms, it is no wonder that interested readers of academic reference works often struggle to define, conceptualize, and even locate the plural of majesty within the Hebrew Bible. Many interpreters have thrown up their hands and outright dismissed claims that the plural of majesty is even present within the Hebrew Bible at all. Others acknowledge the presence of the plural of majesty, but remain deeply skeptical about how frequently it appears. Another contributing problem is the reality that biblical Hebrew courses have a smaller enrollment than Greek courses among students at graduate theological institutions. Unfortunately, this results in fewer persons with an adequate grasp of advanced Hebrew concepts. So the primary purpose of this presentation is to, one, define the concept of the plural of majesty, and two, determine how pervasive it is within the Hebrew Bible. Our task will involve the definitions provided by standard Hebrew grammars, theological dictionaries, and specialized studies. We will explore how the biblical authors employed the plural of majesty to describe Israel's God with various parts of speech, nouns, verbs, and adjectives. We will also examine how characteristics, qualities, and even locations associated with Israel's God sometimes have plural forms with clear singular meanings. Additionally, we will demonstrate how the biblical authors portrayed human beings with the plural of majesty. Our study will then give attention to passages associated with royalty and kingship that exhibit characteristics of the plural of majesty. Finally, we'll observe how large primordial animals have plural forms with singular meanings. And I don't mean the cockroaches that are here in Ohio. I mean these big biblical animals. Once we assess how pervasive the plural of majesty is within the Hebrew Bible, we will discuss the implications for Jewish monotheistic theology, which is sure to be of interest to both biblical Unitarians and those Unitarians who hold to a literal preexistence of Jesus. 
So we need to define our terms. Now, there's been a, a noticeable effort by Hebrew grammarians within the last 10 years to provide an accurate definition of the plural of majesty appearing in the Hebrew Bible. Now, we've already mentioned uh, Lund's article, but the article entitled Pluralis Majestatis in Biblical Hebrew in the Encyclopedia of Hebrew Language and Linguistics offers this particular definition, and this is the one I want to focus on. It is, quote, the term majestic plural or pluralis majestatis refers to the use of a plural to refer honorifically to a single person or entity. It is also called the plural of respect, the honorific plural, the plural of excellence, or plural of intensity, end quote. This was published in the last 10 years. Okay, this is a, a modern definition of it, still saying that the plural of majesty is a legitimate thing within biblical Hebrew. Now, for the sake of our particular presentation today, we're not going to use all of those different terms that we saw on the last slide. I'm going to use some terms that I want you just to assume that they're basically meaning the same thing. They're synonymous. Uh, so plural of majesty, plural of intensity, and honorific plural, or the plural of excellence. So just assume that they all basically mean the same thing. Now, the concept of the plural of majesty, we really should distinguish from Hebrew abstract plurals. What are Hebrew abstract plurals? They are actually just ordinary, basic, common words in Hebrew, but they always appear in plural forms. They don't have some plural forms and some singular forms. They always appear in plural forms. Here are just a couple of examples of abstract Hebrew plurals. Atonement, ordination, virginity, childlessness, betrothal, desirableness, uprightness, mercifulness, smoothness, blindness. Now, these are always plural in biblical Hebrew, but they don't really have a discernible plural meaning. These are not the same thing as the plural of majesty. Plural majesty deals with someone that is majestically plural. He is honorific. He is powerful. He is great. There's something noteworthy about the subject that is a single subject, a single individual, to which the Hebrew Bible is going to ascribe plural forms unto him. Okay. Now, the plural majesty is not simply a biblical phenomenon. It appears in many languages, and it's been in existence for over 3,000 years. We can see it as early as the Akkadian Armana letters from the 14th century BCE. Plural majesty also appears in Ugaritic works. It appears in Assyrian works, in Phoenician works, Ethiopic works, in classical Greek works like Plato, Homer, Isocrates, Xenophon, Thucydides, Herodotus, Aristophanes, Euripides, Sophocles, Asiclus, and Pindar. Okay. Oh, it's a good time for my good, my good, uh, my Greek joke. Okay. A guy walks into uh, into a tailor, and he says, uh, "You, you Minides," and the guy goes, "Euripides." Okay. That was totally unprompted. Okay. There we go. All right. Back to the plural majesty. Plural majesty also appears in 1 Maccabees, which was probably originally written in Hebrew, but by the time that we get it in our Septuagint, it has been translated into Greek, and the plural majesty uh, is still maintained within its Greek translation. There's a modern dialect of Arabic in which the plural majesty still uh, appears. Uh, it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's in the Jewish Targums, and it's also in modern Hebrew. So for some people that think that the plural majesty is something that's kind of old and outdated, I suggest that it's far more pervasive than we might have thought.
When the Trinity's podcast returns, the interesting Hebrew word for God, Elohim. So let's look at some examples. So first thing we have to do is we have to talk about Elohim. Okay, but we're going to start by looking at examples of, for God. Various words that are used to describe the one true God, who of course is a single person, a single individual, the Father alone, and yet we have the word Elohim. Now the word Elohim appears within the Hebrew Bible a little bit more than 2,600 times. That's a lot. Now, Elohim is actually the plural form of Eloah. It is not the plural of El. A lot of people think that El is the singular of Elohim. That's not true. The plural of El is Elim. So now when referencing Yahweh, the biblical authors almost always use the plural form, something like 2,500 times. When referring to the one true God, who is the Father alone, a single person, the biblical authors will almost always use the plural form, only using the singular form, Eloah, 57 times. And that's mostly in the book of Job. Now, the frequent use of the plural form to illustrate a God who is a single person, and there's over 20,000 references and instances within the Hebrew Bible that indicate that God is a single person. So the use of a plural form to describe a singular person indicates an awareness that this God is extensively excellent. He is great, and he is majestic. You see the point? God is a single person, but we're going to describe him with these plural forms, not because it's multiple gods, because a true numerical plural, you'd have to translate it as gods, not one god with multiple persons. It'd have to be plural gods. We're saying that this single individual person, the Father alone, is excellent. He is great. He is honorific. He is majestic. And the fact that Elohim is the second most common noun in biblical Hebrew, and it is the most common noun used to depict Yahweh is evidence of the plural of majesty's pervasiveness. Okay, so we're starting off with at least 2,000 plus occurrences in our pro column. Let's look at the, the next word that's used, adon, okay? Now, I'm, I'm well aware that, that many people here have, probably haven't remembered their, their Hebrew that they, they all learned growing up on their own. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to do the best that I can to try to explain these to people that uh, might need a little bit of assistance in that. Okay, so what is Adon? Okay, so Adon just is a, it's just an ordinary master, a sir, you could just call him Lord. It's kind of a basic word indicating a, a normal master. Sometimes the biblical writers will describe Yahweh with the plural form of Adon, and the plural of Adon is Adonim. You have a masculine noun, and you add the plural form, you add im, that ending to it, to the ending of a masculine noun. And so this use of a plural noun for the God of Israel is another example of the plural of majesty, because God is not multiple lords. God is a single lord. So here's an example here from Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, plural of Adon, Adonim, where is my respect, says Yahweh of hosts. 
And it's clear there that the parallelism tells us that it's not plural masters, it's a single father. It's a single individual. It's interesting because even this plural word for masters, when the Septuagint translator got a hold of it, he actually translated it as the singular, indicating that the Septuagint translator recognized the plural of majesty and translated it as a singular for the readers to understand. That's very clear. We could see this. Clearly, uh, in, in your English translations, we'll recognize it is a plural of majesty because it doesn't translate it as plural masters. It translates it in the singular, but grammatically, it's plural. It's a plural of majesty. Let's look at another passage, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For Yahweh your God, he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Both of those terms there are actually plural. He is the great one, the mighty one, and the awesome one who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. So he is the God, but the phrase Lord of lords, even though in English we have it singular Lord of the plural lords, actually both of them are grammatically plural. But the biblical author uses an independent singular pronoun for Yahweh. It actually used the word he, namely he himself is the God of gods, and singular pronouns indicate singular persons. There are singular adjectives. He is the great one. He is the mighty one. He is the awesome one. And there are multiple singular verbs within the passage. Here's another example of the plural of majesty. And your English translations have already rendered that for you as the Lord, singular, of lords, even though the first Lord is grammatically plural. Let's look at Adonai. Now, this is a word that I think we, we really could use a little bit more education on because uh, there's, there's some interesting things that are taking place with it. Okay, um, So now that we, we already have the, the foundation of Adon, singular for a lord, plural of Adon is Adonim, and Adonai builds off of that. So it's uh, used uh, 449 times for Yahweh. We'll just say roughly 400 times. Now, Adonai is actually related to Adon. Adonai is the first person singular pronominal suffix that's actually added to the majestically plural Adonim. So let me make sure that we're, we're clear on this, okay? We have Adon, singular noun. The plural of Adon is Adonim. When you add the first person pronominal suffix, it would be like my lords. The way that that comes out in Hebrew is Adonai. So Adonai is grammatically plural, every single occurrence. It's the first person pronominal suffix added to Adonim. Every occurrence of Adonai is actually grammatically plural, but it always refers to the Father. It always refers to a single person in every single occurrence. And since the grammatically plural Adonai is governed always by singular verbs, singular adjectives, singular pronouns, and singular suffices, it too is a plural of majesty. So here's some examples. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. For this reason you second person singular, are great, O Lord God, which is O Adonai Yahweh. For there is none like you, second person singular, and there is no God besides you, second person singular. But they're not saying that there is no God beside y'all, in the plural, that's what we say in the South, you know. Okay. 
So there's some very specific second person singular pronouns that are used in this particular passage. And what's interesting is that even though Adonai is technically grammatically plural, the Septuagint translator was a Jew translated as a single Lord into Greek, just to make sure that we're all clear on this particular point. But it's clear that this is a particular person. You are great. There is none beside you. There is no God besides you. And of course, Adonai is connected to Yahweh. There's not multiple Yahwehs. Yahweh is a single Lord. Here's another passage, Psalm 16, verse 2. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. That's a good translation of Adonai. I have no good besides you. So we have a singular pronoun, you. We have the singular pronominal suffix, you. And the Septuagint, of course, is going to translate Adonai, which is grammatically plural, as a single Lord. Adonai is another occurrence of the plural of majesty. And what's interesting, and this is something that we need to kind of consider, is that Jews, when they became really concerned with not wanting to speak the name of God, instead of saying Yahweh, they would substitute it with Adonai, meaning that for the 6,000 plus times in the Hebrew Bible in which Yahweh occurs, they would substitute it not just with Adonai, but with a majestically plural word, indicating an awareness that our great and honorific God is majestically plural without indicating that this God is anything more than a single person. This is, again, demonstrating the point of how pervasive the plural of majesty is. Let's look at the adjective for the holy one. So the adjective kadosh indicates the holy one. And while mostly used for Yahweh in the singular, there are some exceptions. There are some times within the Hebrew Bible in which the plural form of the adjective for holy is used to describe Yahweh. And in the commentaries, they all say, look, this is an example of the plural of majesty, like all of them. They all recognize that. Here are some examples here. And again, you wouldn't know this reading in your English translation, but someone's going to come to you online and say, hey, have you read the Hebrew here? So in Joshua chapter 24, verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God, using the plural adjective, kedoshim, not the singular kadosh. He is a jealous God, using the singular L. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Now, we know that this is not a plural God, even though that the word holy, the adjective holy, is grammatically plural, because we have singular verbs. The verb to forgive is singular. There's a singular adjective. This God is jealous. And, of course, there are singular independent pronouns, namely that God is a he. I mean, he himself is a holy God. Of course, El is indicating that this is a single person because El can only refer to someone who is a single person. And of course, the Septuagint translator, when they saw this plural adjective, translated it with a singular Greek adjective because they recognize there's a plural of majesty that's taking place here. Here's another example. There's actually quite a few. I, I only wanted to give you two in the slideshow, but I think the paper has five examples of the adjective holy being used in the plural uh, within the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 12, uh, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God, walking with El, and is faithful to the Holy One. But there is the plural form of the adjective holy, kedoshim. Clearly, this is a single God because this God is El. And your English translators know this is a plural majesty because they translate it as the Holy One, not the Holy Ones, or the Holy Three, or the Holy Two. 
So we can confirm that even though it's grammatically plural, it refers to a single God because God is a singular L. There's a singular verb that's being used there. We have the singular pronominal suffix. And of course, the Septuagint translator helps us by translating it with a singular Greek adjective. So I said that you, want, you can look at the paper for some more examples uh, in Proverbs and I think in Ecclesiastes. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Smith gives examples of the plural of majesty that relate to God as the creator. All right, let's talk about God being the creator. Typically in Hebrew, when it talks about God as a creator, it's not the noun creator, it's actually a verb, usually a participle, the one who creates, the one who makes, the one who stretches out the heavens, that sort of thing. So Hebrew uses a variety of verbs to describe Yahweh's creative activities. Most of these are singular, as we would expect, but sometimes they're not plural, they're majestically plural. Because how better to explain the creator of all things than to honor him with intensively plural verbs. In Job chapter 35, verse 10, but no one says, where is God, the singular Eloah, my maker, which is the plural participle from Asah, who gives songs in the night. But this is clearly a single God who is a single maker, not a single God who is multiple makers. And your translations, of course, have recognized this. That's why they translated it as a single maker. They know it's not a true grammatical plural. And of course here, the verb to give is singular, indicating the subject is singular. And the Septuagint, of course, indicates that the word maker is actually singular. Here's another example, Psalm 149, verse 2. Uh, Let Israel be glad in its maker, and Asah is grammatically plural. It's a plural participle of Asa without the H. <laughs> uh, let the children of Israel rejoice in their king. Notice there, the parallelism between the maker is actually a singular king. We know that the word maker is grammatically plural and not a true numerical plural because the parallel has a single king. Septuagint, of course, translated as a single maker, and they even have a singular verb in Greek with a singular definite article. Most of this is non-controversial. Most of this is something that you wouldn't have even noticed reading your Old Testament unless somebody pointed it out to you. Here's another example, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. For your husband is your maker, that participle for maker is plural, whose name is Yahweh of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Now, this is interesting because this actually has the word for husband, the word Baal, that's also plural. All your translations will translate in the singular because God is not multiple husbands. That would be ridiculous within the covenant metaphor. So we have lots of singular references within this passage. He is the one who redeems. He is the holy one, the one who is called. And of course, the Greek translator, even though he sees that it is technically a plurality of husbands and the word for maker is plural, he actually puts both of these into the singular. 
okay? Again, you wouldn't have even known this reading your English translation because our Hebrew Bible translators recognize the plural majesty and they translate it for us in a way that makes sense to us. But they're grammatical plurals, but they're not to be interpreted as true numerical plurals. They're to be interpreted as singular. Okay, so we've looked at all these different words for God. We've looked at Elohim. We've looked at Adon. We've looked at Adonai. We looked at the Holy One. Let's look at some of the characteristics and qualities that describe the God of Israel. So in Job 36, verse 4, the one who is perfect in knowledge is with you. But the word for knowledge is actually plural. Interesting. God's wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. Guess what? The word for wisdom is plural. For the wicked is reserved the day of calamity. They will be led forth in the day of God's wrath. The word for wrath is plural. Look at these different characteristics for God. God's terror comes upon him. That word for terror is plural in Job 20, verse 25. God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night. And of course, you can read as that single vision actually takes place. But guess what? The word for vision is plural. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation where are your zeal and your strength. In Isaiah 63, verse 15, the word for strength in Hebrew is plural. We were pregnant. We were writhed to labor. We have birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish the deliverance of God for the earth. The word for deliverance in Isaiah 26, verse 18 is plural. Yahweh has delivered vengeance for you. Vengeance is plural in Judges 11, verse 36. So you can see all of these different places to which the characteristics and qualities of Israel's God are actually plural, but they get translated in the singular. Because it's not just the name of God and the titles for God that are majestically plural. The various qualities and characteristics of God are majestically plural. And here's the last one in Psalm 118, verse 7. Yahweh is with me and he is my helper. The word for helper is plural. But it gets translated in the singular because our translators know and recognize the plural of majesty. Okay, so we got titles for God, adjectives for God, verbs for God, characteristics and qualities of God. What about some noteworthy things pertaining to God? The temple, the temple mount, the city of Jerusalem, the heavenly abode, and even the throne chariot of God. Guess what? Are plural in form, but singular in meaning. Look at this one, Psalm 43, verse 3. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Now here, the translator will actually put in the plural, but clearly the holy hill is God's singular dwelling place. They actually don't recognize the plural majesty. They translate it as a true numerical plural, but really we should know that it should be in the singular because the holy hill of God in Mount Zion is his singular dwelling place. There's not multiple dwelling places in the holy hill. Look at this one. His foundation is in the holy mountains. They translate it as a true numerical plural. Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. So even though we have Zion, a singular place, a single city of God, they still translate the holy mountains there which is Mount Zion, a single mountain, as a true numerical plural, but really it should be in the singular. Your holy cities have become a wilderness, but the parallelism says Zion has become a wilderness. Zion is a single city. Why do they translate in the plural? It's another plural of majesty. 
Should be your holy city has become a wilderness. And it's even further defined as Jerusalem is a desolation. Zion and Jerusalem are not two separate cities. Zion is just the poetic way of describing Jerusalem. It should be your holy city. It's another plural of majesty. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, and look at the parallelism. He has founded his vaulted dome, singular, over the earth. The upper chambers there should be interpreted as a plural of majesty. In your translation, it might be in the plural, but it's paralleled by something that is singular. In Amos chapter 9, verse 6. Look at this one. For behold, Yahweh will come in fire and in his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury. But we know that the throne chariot that God has is a single chariot. Yahweh only has one throne. So here, even the, the chariots of God are likely to be another instance of the plural of majesty. Translators didn't recognize this, and they just translate it in the plural. But God doesn't have multiple chariots in heaven. He's got one throne chariot. Okay, so we've got titles for God. We've got adjectives, we've got verbs, we've got qualities, we've got characteristics, we've got noteworthy things and locations, and even God's throne chariot are plural in form, but they're singular in meaning. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Smith turns to consider similar phenomena in the portions of the Old Testament written in Aramaic, and also this phenomenon in Hebrew with respect to mere human beings. All right, that's just the Hebrew. What about the Aramaic parts of the Old Testament? The Aramaic portions of the Hebrew Bible portray God with the use of the plural of majesty. And, and so the best reference I found is this reoccurring phrase within Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. But that phrase, the Most High, is grammatically plural in all the occurrence of it within Daniel chapter 7. So I'll just go ahead and read them. Then judgment was given to the holy ones of the Most High. But clearly the Most High is a single person, even though it is grammatically plural. In Daniel 7.25, he will speak words against the Most High and will wear out the holy ones of the Most High. The Most High is grammatically plural. The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom's under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the Most High. Again, grammatically plural, but translated in all of your translations as a singular Most High God, because they recognize the plural of majesty. So it's not just in Hebrew, it's also in Aramaic. All right, so we've looked at God. What about human beings? Are individual, single human beings also described with plural forms? to indicate their honor and their majesty? Let's find out. All right, since the authors of the Hebrew Bible use the majestically plural noun Elohim over 2,500 times to describe the one God of Israel, it is quite extraordinary that authorized human agents are also called Elohim. Remember, Elohim is grammatically plural, but what happens when the grammatically plural Elohim is used to describe an individual human being, like Moses. 
He will be to you as a mouth to you, and you will be as God, as Elohim to him. Moses is called the grammatically plural word Elohim. Moses is not multiple gods or multiple persons. We already recognize that Elohim is a plural majesty for God, then when the plural form is used for an individual human being, then we're also seeing the plural majesty used for qualified human agents. Of course, we see this again in Exodus 7, verse 1. Yahweh said to Moses, See, I make you Elohim to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. I do think that in Psalm 45, verse 6, that the Davidic king is actually called God here. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So, uh, arguably, the king there is single person who is called Elohim, which is a plural form, but it refers to a single person. Okay. Even though I know Psalm 45 is disputed, uh, Exodus 4:16 and 7 verse 1 are not disputed. How about this one? Daniel himself is speaking in Daniel chapter 2. This was a dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. But Daniel's the only person talking. He's the only one that's there. And yet he speaks with the first person plural. Why can he do that? Because he's a spiritually empowered and authorized prophet for the one true God. So he can speak with the majestically plural. Let's look at some more human beings. We've already looked at Adon. Remember, Adon is just a, hum- a basic master, lord, sir. Just as the plurally majestic Elohim is used to describe Yahweh and qualified human beings, the plural of Adon is now Adonim, is similarly used for human beings. So look at this one in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 11. Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, grammatically plural, Adonim, does not know it? Now, you'd be reading your Hebrew Bible, your Old Testament. You wouldn't know that David, our Lord, is actually used with the plural word for Lord. Clearly, it's a singular Lord. But why would they say that? It's because David is this great king. I mean, it's, I think there's more said about David in his life in the Old Testament than even Moses. I mean, he's, he's such a massive character in the Hebrew Bible. First Kings chapter 1, verse 43. But Jonathan replied to Adonijah, No, our Lord King David, the word for Lord is plural, has made Solomon king. David is a single person, a singular Lord, but the word for Lord is plural. First Kings chapter 16, verse 24. He bought the hill Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built it on a hill and named the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner, which is grammatically plural, of the hill. This is just an ordinary landowner. There's nothing even like famous about him. It's just that he's wealthy enough to own a hill. And yet the word for owner, single person, is grammatically plural. But it gets translated as a singular in every single English translation. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 4 says, Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master. But the word for master is grammatically plural, Adonim. And the parallel for this cruel master is that he is a mighty king, a singular mighty king to rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. We haven't talked about Baal just yet. Okay, oh my goodness. Please don't say Baal. Okay, this this word here is, is not in reference to the best Batman on cinema. This is Baal. The noun Baal, like Adon, refers to an ordinary owner, a master, a lord, or to a husband. Now, the biblical authors will actually use the plural form, Baalim, to illustrate noteworthy human beings. Again, plural forms to refer to individual, single human persons. In Exodus 21, verse 29, If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring, and its owner, plural, Baalim, 
has been warned. He does not confine it and kills man or woman. The ox shall be stoned and its owner, I think actually it shows up twice actually, uh, shall be put to death. It's a single owner, but it's used in grammatical plural. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. The ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. So the parallelism there is that the ox knows the owner, even though it's grammatically plural, but the parallel has the master's crib. The word for master is singular. So we know that owner is not a true numerical plural. It's not owners. It's a single owner, like a single master. Again, we're saying that plural forms are used for individual human beings. Job 31, verse 39, says much of the same. If I have eaten its fruit without money, or have caused its owner to lose his life. His life there is singular, so we know that it's not plural owners. This actually is translated in some translations as owners, even though the word for life is singular. Okay, It's actually the word, I think it's nefesh, I think it's soul. Plural owners don't have a singular soul. So that's another example of plural majesty for human beings. Okay, what about royalty? Well, if we could talk about God being plurally majestic, the word majesty involves royalty, then what about human royalty? Well, we've already seen a little bit of this with, with King David. Human royalty and kingship are sometimes ascribed with plural nouns when referring to single individuals. First Samuel 26, verse 15 has not one, but two. You get two for one. Buy one, get one free. Occurrences of David the king being described as a single lord with a grammatically plural form. So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Notice the, the honor and fame. Why have you not guarded your lord, Adonim the king? One of the people came to destroy the king, your lord. Ezra chapter 4 is actually written in Aramaic. And here, the reference to the king is grammatically plural, but the context indicates that it is a singular king. It's one of those things that you just, we kind of read through Ezra really quickly. We don't really see stuff like this, um, but I'm trying to be exhaustive. I'm trying to make the case. Let it be known to the king that if the city was rebuilt and the walls are finished, that if they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, it will be damaged in the revenue of the king. Of course, it's one particular king that's being used here, but in Aramaic, it is plural, Malkim. And when we are in the service of the palace, it's not fitting for us to see the kings, singular, dishonor, therefore we have been sent and informed the king. Okay, all the other references to king are singular, but when we talk about the revenue of the king, that indicates how wealthy he is, and of course, wealth indicates how majestic you are, that reference to king is actually plural. Proverbs 16, verse 2, we're back to Hebrew language now. It is an abomination for a king, grammatically plural, melakim, to commit wicked acts. But look in the parallel. The word for king is paralleled with a singular throne, is established on righteousness. So it's not plural kings with a singular throne. It is a single king to commit wicked acts. And I think the verbs there are also singular. All right, so it makes sense, like royalty, majesty, are going to exhibit plural forms when indicating singular persons. Let's talk about these animals of greatness. So biblical poets portray massive primordial beasts with plural forms. You probably heard of behemoth. Behemoth is actually feminine plural of the singular behema. We talk about the behemoth as a singular animal. It's feminine plural. Behold behemoth, which I made with you, he, singular, eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins, and his power in the muscles of its belly. Clearly, it's a single animal, but it's grammatically plural. They even translate it out in its plural form. Look at this one. Rahav. You yourself crushed Rahav like one who is slain, but notice you scattered your enemies. 
The singular Rahav represents plural enemies with your mighty arm in Psalm 89, verse 10. These are primordial enemies, okay? Don't go looking for them today, all right? Look at this one, Leviathan. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters, grammatically plural in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan, singular, and you gave him, singular, as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So we have a singular animal, Leviathan, described as a single primordial animal, but the parallel has Leviathan as multiple sea monsters. The authors of the Hebrew Bible have used the concept called the plural of majesty. Remember, that is the use of plural forms for noteworthy individuals in multiple ways. We have noticed that it's used in nouns in referring to God, Elohim, Adonim, Adonai, totaling to over 3,000 occurrences. And if we add all the times that Adonai covers the divine name that's not spoken out of piety and respect, then we can add another 6,800 occurrences. Plural majesty is used in verbs to describe Yahweh in his role as the creator. It's used in adjective to describe Yahweh as the Holy One. It's used in various characteristics and qualities of Yahweh. It's used in these various locations to describe where Yahweh's at, his temple, his mountain, Jerusalem, heaven itself, and God's throne chariot. It's also used in the Aramaic reference for the Most High God. It's used for human beings because human beings, human individuals, are described with the grammatically plural Elohim, Lord, and Owner, Adon, and Baal. Human royalty and kingship also exhibit evidence of the plural of majesty, and of course, colossal animals like Behemoth, Rahav, and Leviathan. So I thought this was really important to do, because I wanted to take the evidence, and I wanted to kind of show where does this appear in Scripture. Because sometimes I've heard people say, well, this is just simply a poetic way of describing God. It's all in poetry. I have not counted the occurrences of Elohim 2,600 times, Adonai 449 times, or all the occurrences of the divine name that could be understood as Adonai. So we're not counting those. But here you can actually see that there's a lot in poetry, but poetry is not actually half. So if you combine the occurrences in the law codes, in narration, and speech, those seem to be in places to where it's not heavy in poetry. And that actually adds up to most of it. That's 54%, 54.7%, if my math is correct. There is a large chunk in poetry. That is true. You can see there's a lot of differentiation in there. In fact, it's almost evenly divided with narration and speech. Plural majesty is bi-pervasive throughout the Hebrew Bible. So, the existence of plural forms to refer to Yahweh is not evidence of a plurality of persons within the one God, supposedly hinted at all along by the biblical authors. As the concept suggests, Israel's God is majestically plural. He is intensive in scope. He is honorific in value. Can I get an amen? All right. In other words, the use of plural forms to portray the person of Yahweh reflects his heightened status, his incomprehensible value, and his unrivaled worth. Can I get another amen? All right. The biblical authors felt comfortable depicting high-ranking human beings with recognizable plural of majesty terms that were also used for Yahweh, like Elohim and Adonim. This attribution results in human beings bearing authorized titles and functioning as qualified agents of the one true God without threatening unitary monotheism. 
God can empower Jesus with his titles, his names, his privileges, and his prerogatives without threatening the one true God and his person. That's what God can do. God can do that. Now, this study also stands on the shoulders of some of the best Hebrew Bible scholarship available in the modern era. Notably, these scholars are not finding evidence of a numerical plurality within the God in the Hebrew Bible. Instead, these specialists observe the repeated appearance of the plural of majesty to refer to the one true God. And such a study strongly suggests a more favorable opinion is due to Hebrew Bible scholars who define Jewish monotheism, particularly the monotheism that Jesus inherited and passed along to his disciples. Arguably, the plural of majesty is the intended meaning of the plural pronouns in Genesis 126, where Elohim, a plural of majesty word, said, let us make humanity in our image. To say it refers to angels indicates that angels were made in the image of God, um, and that's not said anywhere else in Scripture. Okay, so even though the rumors of the plural of majesty's demise have been largely exaggerated, I think we can all safely say that it looks like the plural of majesty is back on the menu, boys. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, question and answer time, as moderated by Keegan Chandler. question is actually a comment that was submitted. It says, thank you, Dustin. This was a helpful presentations. <laughs> it was Brandon. Um, Bl- blame Brandon for that one. Okay. Could you tell us of an example of a plural of majesty that appears outside of the biblical text? I had a slide, and of course I have, I think, two pages that give documentation of plural of majesty in sources outside of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you could look in First Maccabees in particular, where a king will write a letter to someone else, and the individual king will say, hey, this is what we are doing. He uses the first person plural noun, uh, so you could see that there. But I, I document that stuff, I think, pretty heavily in the footnotes. You can go and look at all those references. And again, like I said, it's, it's it, the fact that it's in like Greek references too, like Plato and Homer, that's a big deal. I would check the paper. If you didn't get a copy of the paper, it's on the app. If you want an actual paper, I'll email it to you. There's a lot of evidence for it outside of the Hebrew Bible. Would it be inappropriate for translators to carry the intensification of majestic plural into the target language? For example, Adonai might be rendered great Lord versus Lord. Um, no, I don't think so. I, I think as long as it's, it's documented and footnoted that what's actually taking place here is that there's a grammatically plural word that's used here that's a plural majesty, and so we're going to translate it to reflect that honorific, intensive, and majestic way. I think that's, that's reasonable. I would not object to that. Sure, it's interesting since it's the plural of, plural of majesty has been subterranean. It'd be an interesting way to bring yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm down for that. It still seems that the average Trinitarian could assert that Elohim or Adonai are plural because God is both singular and plural. That's nonsense. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Stop right there. They can say what they want. If you want. Here's the thing. If you want to argue that Elohim is an actual plural, you have to translate it as God's. You can't say it's God with multiple persons. You have to translate it as a numerical plural. That's what happens when the Hebrew Bible will describe the pagan gods. And those pagan gods will have plural verbs, and it'll translate it as gods, reflecting Elohim. And so the verbs and the adjectives that surround Elohim tell you whether it's singular or plural, because they're governed by, when it comes to the God of Israel, with singular references, over 20,000 of them. It's like basically a singular reference for every verse of the Old Testament. Uh, to say God is singular and plural is, I would say it's as silly as saying that I could be a man and a woman, but I guess that's kind of, you know, it's 2022, who knows these days? <laughs> So, I don't think that, by the way, sorry, so, I'm a dude. Why do some scholars claim that the plural of majesty is too late in history to be in the Old Testament? They are ill-informed of how pervasive the plural of majesty is, respectfully it's, submitted. It seems at least some modern scholars have backed off from applying the plural of majesty to Genesis 126. Instead, saying that God is addressing his heavenly court, for yeah. example, the NET. Is there a good exegetical basis for one explanation over the other? Yes, yeah, so, and, and I, I mentioned it. I imagine that was submitted before the end of the, uh, the presentation. So, uh, I, I, and I used to champion the reading of Genesis 126 that refers to angels. And in fact, that is the earliest documented Jewish view. I think you can see it in the Jewish Targums and also it's one of the earliest Christian views. I think the Epistle of Bartimus. The pseudonymous epistle of Barnabas in the second century AD also makes that point. Um, but it indicates that uh, if God is speaking to the angels and saying, let us make man in our image and our likeness, then it means that human beings are made in the image and likeness of angels. And I don't think that's what the Bible says. I think the Bible, when it talks about the fact that we're made in the image of God and we're being restored in the image of God, it's always the image of God. It's never the image of God and angels. So it gives a suggestion to understand the plural reference but it doesn't explain how the angels actually fit into that creative role and the reflection of the image and likeness in a satisfactory way. And so again, if it's Elohim said, which is a recognizable grammatically plural reference to God, in fact, the second most common noun in the Hebrew Bible, the most common way that God is described as uh, majestically plural, I think that's, that's quite reasonable. I think it's, it's, I think it's a much better solution and it doesn't come with any of the problems. So try it on, see what you think. Why was Yahweh, Yodhe read as Adonai rather than Adonim? I don't think that there are any places within the Hebrew Bible to where Yahweh is described as Adonai. I think it's because Adonai was so frequently used, like I said, 449 times, I guess it's somewhat frequent, that they just carry that on. I think it's the, the second most common title that's used of Yahweh after Elohim. So it just seemed like the most natural way to use that. But I, that would be my guess. I, do I know exactly? Was I there at the meeting when they talked about that? I wasn't there. So uh, I don't think anywhere Yahweh is described as Adoni. I don't believe. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Okay. And thank, thank you so much. Appreciate questions. it. like to hear more from Dr. Dustin Smith, 
I know I would, be sure to check out his excellent Biblical Unitarian podcast. As I'm finishing this episode, it's up to number 289. So there's a ton of interesting, high-quality, well-presented biblical content there for you. And again, don't forget to go over to UnitarianChristianAlliance.org and register for the conference. I hope to meet you or to see you again there. This week's thinking music has been the track, We Are Now, by Marco Trovatello. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.